HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. You can't have plant-based breakfast without a plant-based egg. You can get started with a free sample. Just head to ju.st slash hrn. This week on Meet and 3, we rethink surplus by exploring how innovators are promoting sharing mindsets and responding to excess in creative ways. The whole life cycle of food would be the third largest greenhouse gas emitter behind China and the United States if it were a country. You know, in the age of COVID, where a lot of those institutional processors did grind to a halt and a lot of farms had to dump milk in Pennsylvania, even while supermarket cases were, were bare, the organic market stayed strong. They source all these ingredients, they do all of this work, and then they just boil it for a few minutes and then they throw it away. Tune in to Meet and 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Item 13. Uh, this week, we are very lucky, I think, <laughs> to have with us an expert on a very important topic um, as you know, the pandemic has sort of raged and ravaged a lot of um, food businesses, especially restaurants and chef work. There's been a lot more people that are pivoting to do food brands and products. Um, and it's not as straightforward as you would think. Um, and then just in general, too, and I've shared this on the podcast before, like my pantry in particular, I would say probably 70 to 90 percent of the stuff I have in my pantry is from um, African food entrepreneurs that I've either met or I've discovered online. And I really try to patronize it and, and use it in my everyday cooking. So when I find people that are doing interesting stuff in this space, um, I'm always eager and happy to speak to them. Um, and thrilled especially to speak to Abna because she's an expert on an important topic, food labeling regulations. We covered this a little bit with the Gingen brothers when they were here to talk about their product. Um, but I think Abna especially has the credentials <laughs> to go with it. So um, welcome, welcome to to the show, Abna. Thank you so much, Yorm. Um, great. So I want to start by letting people know who you are, um, so tell us who tell us who Abna is. Hi, listeners. Thank you so much, Yarm, for having me here. My name is Abna Foley. I was born and raised in Ghana and moved to the United States in 2006 to further my education. I am the first of two children. Um, my dad is a farmer, so that kind of gives you a hint as to how I got into the food space as well. Cool. Um, 2006. I, when did I? I it seems like a lifetime ago. I was trying to remember when I moved here um, for school also. <laughs> um, so then what are your um, early memories of food? You talk about your, your father being a farmer. Like, what are some of the early memories you have of, you know, your father and food? And how did that sort of inform what you ended up doing um, with food? So I grew up with my dad, my brother, and I stayed in my grandma's house because my mom used to travel a lot outside the country for okay. either educational services or for work. And my grandma cooks a lot. My aunties cook a lot. My dad had the farm, but he also had a big garden in the backyard of my grandma's mm. house. So it was 
from infancy and looking at through some of my childhood pictures, even me crawling <laughs> in my dad's vegetable, vegetable <laughs> bed, him teaching my brother and I how to grow vegetables. And I can tell you, I don't have a green thumb, which is very sad. Um, and then quite honestly, the fondest memories is whenever my uncle, my uncle, my late uncle lived in Germany and every Christmas he would come to Ghana. And so we would have this big family celebration. And my dad was in charge of making the, Memankwai, which is the men's <laughs> life soup. <laughs> and, and so um, guess what? I was his sous chef who was in charge of picking the, in, the spices and the herbs. And then he would teach me how to blend the traditional, you know, spicy blends that we typically use in our cookings in West Africa. So that's how my early introduction to even blending spices and cooking came. And that's what when I looked at what I wanted to do to introduce West African food to the U.S. retail market, that was what I I leaned towards, what mm-hmm. I knew best, which was blending the spices. Yeah, that is so interesting. I've never, I've interviewed so many people now and just spoken to a lot of people offline. I've never heard um, like a father figure, uh, or for, in this case specifically a father um be so prominent in a person's food story. Um, it's usually their mother or their grand <laughs> grandmother. Um, so this is really interesting. Um, one of the things I also wanted to touch on before we move into your spice line is that you have a master's degree. This is why people, I say she has credentials. <laughs> she has a master's degree in food science. Specializing in food safety microbiology. First of all, if if you're listening, and I I don't think I've ever mentioned this before, but Ghanaians, West Africans in general, we like school. I don't know how how (laughs) we once we leave. I think once they push us off the shores, you feel like you have to get all the degrees that you need to get. But Uh, most people um, would do the traditional path, right? So I don't know. People end up in in law or medicine or you know business, generally speaking. I'm interested in why and how you landed on food science (laughs) and then specifically this food safety microbiology piece. So um, one of the things that I did well in school with was the sciences, particularly Mm. biology and chemistry. But because of my love for food, growing up with a dad who is in farming and aunties who knew how to cook, I always had that passion for food. Um, initially I thought I would go into like the culinary space, but I realized that even from high school, I found ways to incorporate my love for food into my passion for the sciences. So, um, I did the international baccalaureate and for our essay, I extended essay, which was mine was science-based. I, I, I worked on bread. I don't know why I chose bread, (laughs) but of course it was food. And then when I came to college, I went to college in Mount Holyoke, I pursued biochemistry. Mm-hmm. And I had the opportunity to do some research internships over the summer. And my first year, after my first year, I had the opportunity to do biochemistry research in Yale. And I had a mentor and an advisor who asked me what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Initially, I said, I want to get a PhD in biochemistry. And she asked me, are you very sure you're good at biochemistry, but remember that if you're going to do a PhD, this is going to be like your work. Yeah. You want to do something that you want to wake up every morning and be excited to do. I had an epiphany and I said, yep, biochemistry PhD is not it. And so at the end of the research program, we were able to go for a job fair and Cornell had a food science table there. And that was my first time of coming across mm-hmm. food science. And I said, this is what I've been looking for, something to combine my passion for the sciences and my love for the food. Um, And I found that the Cornell also had a summer research program. So I applied for that um, and I got into it to do that after my second year in college. I did that and that sent me onto the path for pursuing um, food science master's degree. My holder did not offer a food science mm-hmm. degree, but our uh, we were part of a consortium called the Five College Consortium and University of Massachusetts Amherst had a food science um, department. So I took food microbiology with UMass Amherst and that's how I got into like the food safety microbiology space and pursued that for my master's degree. Wow, wow. Kudos, kudos to you. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, I just always find like non-traditional, well, non-traditional in the sense that they did, they don't follow the path that a typical African immigrant would follow. I find very fascinating, and then just. I will keep this in mind because I get a lot of requests for food scientists, like mm. specifically related to African food. And again, um, so Abna and I just recently connected through Clubhouse, actually. <laughs> and um, some of the conversations that we've had on there are about this idea of African food. Tra- I, I hate to say trending, but like that's... That's what we're calling it for now anyway. But there's just been an increased interest in it. And as that happens, and, and, and I'm sure we'll go into that when we talk, start to talk about labeling and ingredients and all that. As mm-hmm. that starts to happen, then people are trying to look for more formal ways to sort of categorize the foods they're making, mm-hmm. be able to prove what is in their products. Mm-hmm. And so as they're starting their businesses, they're, you know, they're thinking, oh, do I, you know... Do, and I don't know how even people get to maybe they Google and they find they need that they need a food scientist and they ask me, do you know a food scientist? I'm like, mm-hmm. I only know one who's based in Ghana. Um, stay well now, Bizzalo. Um So it's it's great to meet you too. <laughs> so that <laughs> as I get, you know, requests or whatever, I can send them your way too. Awesome. Fantastic. All right. So let's talk about your spice line. What is it called? Why did you start it? So this, the brand name for the spice line is Spoke Spices, and we retail, we develop and retail spicy, authentic West African seasonings. I started Poke Spices in 2016 because I wanted to introduce my American friends to authentic West African products. But whenever I went to our typical African store, the products that I saw mm. were not in packaging or packaging formats that I could I felt comfortable in introducing to my American friends and being in the food industry space, also specializing in food safe, uh, food labeling. I noticed that they were not complying with FDA regulations in terms of how American products needed to be yeah. labeled. And so I leveraged my food science. I had previously done um, product development. So I leveraged that expertise to start the spice line so that I could introduce my American friends to West African flavors and just knowing that typically when people are unfamiliar with a culture or people group, seasonings are the main or one of the initial vehicles that they get to explore that cuisine or flavors. So that was why I chose seasonings and spices. And like I said, that was what I had grown up mm. being taught to do very well as well. Yeah. What does what does POK stand for? So the brand for people who are since P-O-K-S. What does it stand for? I, I, I have a guess, but I'll let you tell <laughs> tell us first. So I have two first names. My mm. name is Abna Opokua. Mm, and Opokua is O-P-O-K-U-A. Growing up, my cousins used to call me O-P-K, or some of them called me Pokes, Pokes, Pokes. <laughs> doing research for what a brand name needs to be, I learned that it has to be a unique, identifiable um, name that potentially you could trademark as well to help protect your brand identity. So I figured, hey, why not use a variant of my name, but something that was simple as well. So that's why I chose Pokes. Yeah. Second name. I figured, I thought it was Pokia actually, but I was was close enough. Correct. (laughs) Um, All right. So we we now know what the brand is, the inspiration behind it. What um because podcast is not a visual medium, what are what are the line of spices that you have? What are the different products you have within your brand and what do like what are their names? What do what what can people use them for? So all our spices are all our seasonings are spicy. We have oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> because we know if, if you're you and I know that typically West African foods savory foods tend to be mm. spicy they just yeah. vary in spice intensity yeah and so just for our listeners listening um our seasonings are to be the holy trinity of west african cooking the holy trinity of west african cooking are your hot peppers your ginger and your onion mm. supplemented with other spices or herbs so when you get poke spices you're getting that holy trinity that you can blend with other spices in your pantry or even with other herbs as well. We developed it without any MSG, any sugar and any preservatives because traditionally that's how it will be prepared. We also lowered the salt, the salt, the salt content as well because we want to position it in a way that you can blend it with other um, spices or herbs 
without overstalting your meals. So we have three variants. We have the original spicy, which was the first one that we had initially developed. Previously, I was calling that the daddy's recipe as an <laughs> ode to my dad. <laughs> but recently, we changed the name to just streamline our brand um, names. And we just call it original recipe, original um, spicy right now. The second one we developed what the, was the extra spicy that we previously called the mama's recipe as an ode to my mom. Um, but now it's called the extra spicy and it, the, the original and the extra spicy are both cayenne based. Okay. The extra spicy is just going to have a higher heat intensity. So for those who really love <laughs> extra heat, that gives you the extra heat. But remember, our products are flavorful. You're not just getting like a buffalo sauce hit. You're <laughs> getting flavor as well. Yeah. And then the third one, which is what we just introduced to the market last summer, is our mouth spicy. And that is the jalapeno based. Okay. So th- we used jalapeno as a play on the papuchito chili mm. um, peppers, which is your petite bell peppers, which are spicy green peppers typically found in Ghana. But because we can't source or we're unable to source a powder from here locally in the U.S., we use the jalapeno, but we blended the ingredients to give you that flavor profile as well. That is also spicy, but is our mildest heat intensities of the three. Thank you. That was such a thorough explanation. Thank you so much. My initial thought or comment or question for you as you were describing it um, was what, in terms of the American, so let's... Okay, maybe let's take a step back. What, one, what is your most popular product in terms... One, what is your most popular product? And then in terms of heat intensity, what feedback are you getting from the American consumer versus the... Um, let's say someone like me, for example. Because I find that... Um, people tend to just across the board like ethnic foods when it comes to heat intensity we tend to hold back mm-hmm. because of trying to tailor to 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 the american palate right and so sometimes i will i will go to i don't know a chinese restaurant or an indian restaurant and even when i tell them i want the heat level at 10 <laughs> when i get it it's like um, I don't, this is, this is not, you know, spicy at all. And I understand that, you know, they're trying, it's for them, it's, they don't want it to be, and which is why I intentionally order it at 10, because I know that if I do it at five, it's, it's nothing. Right. Correct. And so I wonder from your perspective, how people are receiving it from the, from the heat intensity point of view. So from our people, which is the West Africans or the Africans or people from ethnic groups who are used to spice. Our extra spicy is a bestseller, mm. interestingly. Um, I've even had comments from certain groups of people, some Nigerians or some other people saying they even want it hotter. And <laughs> I'm like, I'm trying to give you flavor and heat. Yeah. I'm not trying to, to scald your tongue yeah. <laughs> and give you stomach ulcers. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a bestseller. Mm. Um, but last year when we did our farmer's market, so we live in a predominantly Caucasian neighborhood. So mm-hmm. the farmer's market had predominantly Caucasian um, attendees. Our original spicy, which is the lower of the, the heat intensity of the cayenne base, ended up being the best seller as well. But we have people across both spectrums who have fallen in love with the mild spicy, which is the jalapeno base yeah. that we just introduced as well. So I would say that for people who want to try the cayenne-based, original spicy has been the one for them along with the mouth spicy. And for those who can tolerate some level of heat and also know how to cook with cayenne on a day-to-day basis and in, in cooking bulk, they love the extra spicy. Yeah, that, that, that makes complete sense to me. And then in terms of the American consumer in particular, mm-hmm. um, how are you educating them, I guess, on how to use um the spices so like i shared before the spices are supposed to be the west african holy trinity so mm-hmm. i i liken it to cajun cajun mm-hmm. so i when we go to the farmer's market i said think of it as your cajun seasoning but without all that salt and so as soon as i see that it clicks for them mm. because they know what the yeah. cajun seasoning flavor profile should be but typical Cajun seasonings that you have on the market are salt laden, right? So we're like, 
this is less salt so you just need a little bit because when you have less salt you're going to have more of the flavor come yeah. you just need a little bit sprinkle it on and sometimes we even have cooked rice so we sprinkle it on a cooked rice and have them taste so that oh, they can taste that's smart they can taste what it's like and we don't salt the rice we just add a little bit of oil to the rice just to help it um the flavors come through a bit more and then they're like oh i can see i can use it in my oh i can use it in my chicken i can use it in my beef i can use it in this and we tell them also what we use it for as well and then do you have any stories of anyone who's used it the wrong way maybe um or have had any feels in the kitchen and have reached out and you know said oh no this doesn't work or this is too spicy or this is too much because because they used it the wrong way Yes. <laughs> so one of my neighbors, actually, she came to the farmer's market and wanted to support us. So she bought the original spicy. Um, at that time, we hadn't launched the mild spicy. And she said her mom was using it for pork, a rack of pork ribs. And her mom put the whole pouch onto the pork ribs. When she told me, my eyes just <laughs> opened up. I was like, no, ma'am. This is a cayenne-based seasoning. So you you have to kind of use it just like you would use your cayenne <laughs> seasoning or your cayenne spice. But it's just it just has other things in there to help you so that you don't you just don't get heat. So she said her mom had to like literally wash off the whole, oh, no. the whole pork <laughs> because it was too spicy. And so then I started going through with her and educating her again. And that helped. You know, I'm thankful that it was my neighbor that yeah, also, that, that's also true. my friend. So we were able to show her how to use it. And recently we posted one of her recipes where she used the mild spicy to make a creme for tacos. So she's learning how to use it better as well. Um, so that helped us because now when we went to farmer's market, we made sure that we emphasize a little sprinkle here and there <laughs> is all you need. <laughs> oh my, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's 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 true on the education piece for sure, yeah. Because if <laughs> that's really interesting, and it's a good thing that it was your neighbor too, for sure. Um, Correct. so we are about to take a quick short break, but before that, I just remembered we haven't told people where they can find the spices to buy if they, they're interested. Are you first of all? We well, we all know we're based in the U.S. Um, where can they find it? Um, in the U.S. So first and foremost, you can go to our website. It's mm. pokespices.com, P-O-K-S, and then spices, it's one word, dot com. You can also find us on amazon.com. Oh, okay. You can also find us on Ethnic District, which is one of our favorite stockists to be on. We're also on Flo's Grocery, which is a stockist that tries to highlight Black-owned businesses. Um... So those are the four main places I would say you can find us. We're also on Etsy. If you go to Etsy, you'll find us there. Oh, interesting. Yes. <laughs> and then we also on Bubble Goods, which is an American web, um, stockist that's trying to promote the the better for you, the healthy, um, healthy products, which our product is as well. We're a very clean label. Like I said, we don't have any MSG, any sugar, any preservatives that you typically find or even anti-caking agents that you typically find in your, your typical um, seasonings on the market as well. Cool, great. And then we will include those links when we post on social media and then also on the podcast show notes so people can go directly to those sites to 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 um, find those spices now i'm interested i'm i'm interested really in trying the extra spicy just for my <laughs> my own um experimentation to see how spicy how spicy we get um cool all right so we'll take a quick break and then when we come back we will dive into this topic of like food labeling packaging if you will especially when it comes to african food entrepreneurs and then um abna will tell us a little bit about her new business i don't want to say side hustle her new <laughs> additional business line let's just say that's gonna help a lot of you who are trying to bring your products or brands to market so we'll be right back mm -hmm. 
Just Egg is now the fastest growing egg brand in the United States. Bring more plant-based consumers in your doors with easy-to-use Just Egg. You can get started with a free sample. Just head to ju.st slash hrn. That's ju.st slash hrn. Made from plants, Just Egg is a better egg for you and for the planet. It's healthier with no cholesterol and less saturated fat, and it's more sustainable. Just Egg uses less water and generates fewer carbon emissions. Most importantly, it's delicious. For our listeners who operate a food service establishment, you can get a sample for free. Head to ju.st slash hrn. That's ju.st slash hrn. Just Egg makes a delicious plant-based addition to any menu. It's available as a liquid scramble. Great for omelets, frittatas, stir-fries, and French toast. There's also a frozen pre-baked folded version that's ideal for filling breakfast sandwiches or topping salads. Chef Jose Andres calls Just Egg mind-blowing, and Bon Appetit says, It's so good, I feel guilty eating it. Put the fastest-growing egg brand on your menu. Get a free sample of Just Egg for your restaurant at ju.st hrn. Cool. So we're back from the break. Um, just had a really interesting discussion on spices, um, um, Abna's background, how she got into the spice business and the lessons she's learned so far. And then we also shared where you can find folk spices. So online on Amazon, Ethnic District, etc. And I will be sharing those links. Now I want to talk more about another of Abuna's expertise, like this idea of food labeling, especially around like the basic details that you need to know. Mm-hmm. And then also just what to keep in mind in terms of compliance and regulatory affairs. So again, this is going to be a high level conversation, folks, because Abna is going to share with us a service mm-hmm. she's offering that can get you a deeper dive into some into this topic. And I personally think it's really important, mm-hmm. not just from the perspective of, you know, having a pretty looking label that has like the African mom, which also is a whole separate topic of how people brand in terms of trying to look a certain way to, to be African. Um, but not just the aesthetics, right? But literally the, the legal requirements to be able uh-huh. to be put onto a shelf. So my first question for you is like, why is it important to know these things? Because like you said, you go to the African store and someone just slaps a thing that says, <laughs> you know, whatever, this name of the spice, Eru or Dawa Dawa, whatever it is, mm-hmm. and end of story. And we don't know as a consumer how long it's been sitting there, um, you know, what went into it, blah, blah, blah. So why is it important from your perspective? So I've I've had almost 10 years of industry experience, food industry experience. Like I said, I started out as a product formulator Mm -hmm. right after school and then pivoted to regulatory affairs. And it was during my my stint as a regulatory affairs person that my eyes began to open when I went to African stores and I was like, whoopsie, this is not complying with FDA labeling requirements because I was exposed to what the standard needed to be. Mm -hmm. And so what most what most small brands and it's not just the african brands as well but what most small brands don't realize is once you get into retail your products are regulated and overseen by the fda the us fda and the us fda has spelled out requirements on how you should label copy your packaging even what you should consider when you're choosing a label size for your packaging oh interesting Correct. And so people don't realize that. And so they just choose packages because maybe packaging sizes because that's what they want. But they don't give a lot of thought into the packaging size that needs to go on your packaging. And then on top of that, the FDA has stipulated what needs to go on a package label to be compliant. There are requirements that you need to there are requirements that you need to have on your label where to place them. There are also even sizing requirements for the content that needs to go on your label. And so people don't know this. 
And one of the reasons why I started the business is as I'm also very passionate about helping our West African foods be elevated, not just mm-hmm. what I'm doing, but collectively. And so over time, I'll reach out to certain brands and I'll be like, hey, I work in the food industry. I saw this. You're not doing this. And some were not taking me seriously. Right. So I got to a place where I said I need to start if I if I start to monetize this people will see the importance of doing it because then it's not just, hey, she's just saying this because now I can leverage the expertise that I have to show you why it's important to do this. And first, I needed to do it for my brand and my packaging so that you knew what I was talking about. And so that's why I started this consulting business because people don't realize also that the FDA can recall your product for mislabeling your product. Oh, interesting. How do they... Um, find out that your product is mislabeled? I don't know if that's a silly question, but I just wonder. (laughs) It's not. It's not. So, for instance, there's an African store here in the Dallas Metro that we have a product in. Mm -hmm. And one day I walked in there and there was a favorite Kenke brand. Kenke is the, the Ghanaian tamale that I used to buy. And I went in there and I asked the owner, what is it? And he said that the FDA inspector, and what this is what people don't realize, FDA inspectors go to these stores as well. Oh, wow. So that the is F- news to me. Wow. Yes. And I didn't know that. I didn't know that until then myself. I just thought that it was typically people reporting because you can report a brand to FDA or if there's an outbreak of a disease or an allergen outbreak, mm. then pe- they get into trouble. But FDA inspectors do go to some of these stores just to make sure. And so if you put like distributed by, they will search your brand or your your information in the system to make sure that you are you've kept up with your food manufacturing lines. If not, they'll pull your product from the shelf. If your packaging is not compliant, they'll pull your product, right? So then that's when he told me that and I was like, oh, so they do come to these stores. So even for us who feel like our first point of entry may be our ethnic stores, we have to realize that your product can be pulled off the shelf if you don't have the legal requirements that are, that's on there that's required or if you mislabel your product or if there's an outbreak of a disease from your Mm. product and they typically go for this mislabeling the big thing they go for is allergens oh interesting so speaking of that so what are the um what is the basic um we don't want you to give away all the tea but what is the what are the basic details you need to have on a food label like um foundational the abcs of like what should be on the label for that i'm going to tell your listener to sign up for my food (laughs) (laughs) for my food labeling course (laughs) because we're going to delve deep because it's not just telling them what they need to have on there i need to be able to explain to them why it's important what the what the requirement the regulation requirement is on that where they need to place it the sizing requirements they need to have as well so what i'm trying to avoid is just telling your listener this is what they need to have they go and then they just misplace it Mm -hmm. and then that becomes a problem and they say oh but abana said on this podcast (laughs) that (laughs) you need to have this on there (laughs) right okay so then let's talk about what you're offering as part of so one it's a food consulting business and under the umbrella of the food consulting business you're offering this new um course on food labeling so what would what will people get from signing what is the name of the the business um what will they get from attending the course how long how long is the course Mm -hmm. um what will they take away from it Awesome. So the business is called Foley Food Consult. So Foley is my last name, F-O-L-I, Food Consult. So that's the website as well, foleyfoodconsult.com. And for the Food Labeling 101 course, we're going to delve into what the FDA requirements are for what you need to be on your label. Um, in terms of thinking about what's the appropriate label size to have for your, pack, for your, your product package, we're going to delve into the requirements. We're going to look at every requirement, what the regulation says, how you need to approach it, the placement, the sizes, and I'm also giving watch outs. So anyone who signs up for the course is going to have, it's going to be a one and a half hour course. So I'm going to teach the material, give opportunities for people to ask questions, 
prior to the course, everyone who signs up is going to get a handout, which they can use as, as I'm talking, they can follow along with what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. They're going to be able to also have that handout to share with their graphic designer so that as a graphic designer is designing the graphic elements of the label, they also bear in mind the regulatory requirements. And then what I'm doing, especially for those who are signing up for this round is I'm going to review one label for them and take that label on what's wrong on that label so they can mm. share that with their graphic designer to do an update for the label as well. Well, that's cool. And I, and I hope a lot of people, because I get a lot of um questions or you know requests for different sorts of things i hope a lot of people can take advantage of it i think one of the things that we need to start doing in our community especially is to take advantage of experts right and mm -hmm. so as we it's it's good to know how to mix the spice blend or make the sauce or like you know, um, source, you know, specific grains or whatever, even have a perspective on design, blah, blah, blah. But we, it's, I think it's really important because it can be costly. Correct. And I don't know if you can talk about that a little bit, but it can be costly if you don't meet some of this basic um, compliance um, regulatory stuff, right? Correct, correct. Even if your product doesn't get pulled off the shelf and you are found to to be not in compliance with the product, the FDA can write a letter and they tend to be public letters. And so think about how your brand identity is going to be negatively impacted if people see that you are not compliant with an FDA regulation. And you have to realize that if you're striving to reach American consumers, they take that very seriously. Mm -hmm. And food safety is a big thing in the United States. And so nobody wants to have a product in their pantry that either has a food safety issue, is going to cause their kid to become sick because of improper labeling of allergens, or if they're not compliant with regulation. For instance, one of the regulations people don't think about is fill, product fill. We put my product is 16 fluid ounce, and then you fill your product to 14 fluid ounce. That's also mislabeling of your product. Oh, and people don't think people don't think about that. So those are some of the things that I'll be talking about in the food labeling course. And so we'll delve into these tools to help um, the, the attendees. And also afterwards, they're going to have me as a resource to help them navigate that. Um, there's some additional services that I'm looking to introduce as well, if I can talk more about Yeah, that. Yeah, you can. Sure. Go ahead. So one of the services, so I have three services that I'm offering in addition to the food labeling course. One is development of your nutrition facts and your ingredient statement, as well mm. as your allergen statement. And so um, people, sometimes people just slap something together. Oh, I have shrimps. I have this. I have this. And they don't label in the way that it needs to be labeled and declaring the allergens the way it needs to be declared. Even with the um, nutrition facts panel, you need to be thoroughly educated to make sure you declare your nutrition facts panel properly. The, U, the FDA just rolled out new regulations for nutrition facts, which replaced the old ones. Recently, I saw some brands that are using the old nutrition facts panel mm. and need to transition over. The deadline for transition was January 1, 2021, mm -hmm. and they haven't even transitioned over <laughs> to the new nutrition facts panel. Um, the second thing I'm also doing is um, and it, so that's tier one. Tier two is development of all the things that I talked about in tier one, but additional copy information. So what should your product name be? What should your the regulated net quantity statement be? What should be the things that your graphic, the elements that your graphic designer needs to put it? We call it label copy mm -hmm. to put on the on the label for you. And then tier three is tier two. In addition to three rounds of label review, working with your packaging designer as they go through the iterations to make sure that the information that I developed for you is appropriately carried through through to the design. Because one of the things I noticed working in the food industry is you give the designer the information, they end up doing something completely different than what you handed them. And then you lock in the design and it's completely wrong. So mm -hmm. making sure that from the ground up through to the finished product label, everything is compliant. Wow. This, I, I'm, well, I mean, oh, I'm, all, <laughs> I am even speechless right now. Like that is so incredible. One, just 
the level of expertise that you'll be offering because a lot of times when people are intimidated by a whole process in general and then be I think that's part of why people don't do it. Number one, mm-hmm. it's just they are intimidated by the process. They don't have the knowledge. And two, people also want to work with people who understand their product, right? Which which is why, like, your offering is compelling to me. One, not just that you really know your stuff, but that if I came to you with, like, my... I keep saying Dawa Dawa mix, but, like, my <laughs> Dawa Dawa mix. Like, you understand what Dawa Dawa is, like, what I'm trying to convey. So mm-hmm. it's, it's not me trying to... First of all, taking a step back to explain and do all of this. So you understand it. So as you think about the things I need to include my label and how it will translate to the U.S. market, mm-hmm. um, that initial, like that baseline foundation is there. And I think it's, it's. It, I can only imagine where this will go for you in terms, because I, I, there's just so many people that need this and that need it from even the cultural competency perspective. So Correct. Um, for sure, like... And I know a lot of people who listen regularly who need this service. So, um, if you know, if you know, you know who you are. So, take. I, I'm not gonna mention names, but I will start tagging people on social when this comes out to take advantage of this because I think I think it's incredible. I think as we start. Um, as we continue to explode, become more quote unquote mainstream, mm-hmm. we also need to think about how we present ourselves. Right, like Correct. for me. My gateway into the food space was through um, restaurants or food service, hospitality, blah, blah, blah. And my one of my pet peeves was around um, our culture of service and hospitality, right? Mm. And so it's, it's a similar story here. How do you present yourself? And it's not about taking away the authenticity of what you do. It's about mm-hmm. performing or working to a certain standard. Mm-hmm. That I frankly think that it's not not just the Western audience deserves, that we also deserve. I deserve to go into an African food establishment and have a certain level of service and experience too, right? And so Correct. um I, I think I love, love, love what you're doing with this. I think it's incredible. Um and I Thank hope you. people take advantage of this for sure. And I will include again, like I'll I think I have all the links, but if not, yeah. I'll reach out to you again and make sure that we include all of that so that when this comes out, we share it so people know where to go for awesome. all the different resources. Um, one question I had, or maybe two, <laughs> I think I've heard as you were talking, was one, how all of this affects the pricing of a product. Mm-hmm. Um, and then oh, let's start there. <laughs> one, how it affects the pricing of a product, right? Because I would imagine that this, you know, <laughs> this is not free like you have to pay mm-hmm. the fda and you know you pay your graphic designer and all, mm-hmm. of, all of this stuff mm-hmm. right so what are your thoughts on on that so just to start off you will not pay the fda oh, um, okay. um you just have to make sure that whoever is developing your nutritional and all of that they are cert- they they have the credentials so that when fda comes up to you you can go up to the person right Okay. But if anybody, you don't have to pay the FDA to review your label. FDA mm-hmm. will not review your label for you. So that's why you have to try and use an expert because when they do come after you and either give you the letter or find you or pull your product, that's going to cost you money, right? Mm-hmm. So to your point, there is going to be an investment in there. And that's why for me, even in the food labeling course, I've tried to make my pro- my pricing almost half of what industry experts will charge because I understand as a small business, I understand being cash strapped or having limited capital, right? And so in terms of pricing, our product, for instance, we retail our, our two ounce pouch for $4.99, um, which typically when you go to your Walmart or your Kroger or your HEB or whatever store you have, mm. a two ounce spice bottle or spice bottle or spice pouch would probably be like $1.99. But then the way I tell people is I'm bringing you a, a, a value proposition that the other products don't have. Number one, what you're going to have in the store, the first ingredient is going to be salt. That's not the case for yeah. us. We're giving you pure spices and and you know some uh with some salt but you're not just getting 70 percent or 90 percent salt 
So that's going to justify my pricing because salt is the cheapest ingredient you can have. Number mm -hmm. two, if you look at my packaging, my packaging is not going to be your typical just slap something on their packaging <laughs> that you have. There's a lot of thought and effort that has gone into a packaging. So for instance, with my packaging for the two ounce pouch is a custom pre-printed pouch. And those custom pre-printed pouches are expensive to make, but I want to give my customer what they're used to when they go to a, a, a specialty store or when they buy a premium product. Mm. And also so that it's like a, it's a resealable pouch. So when you open up the pouch, you can rezip it. So when you put it in your pantry, you don't have to worry about finding clippers or something yeah. else, a peg or something to hold it. And it's also a foil pouch. So you know that your product is going to be preserved longer than if I just put in a Ziploc and I just left a label <laughs> on there. <laughs> so those are some of the thought processes that mm. went into it. And so you have to understand that all those things are going to cost money for the small business. Even in, in because I'm a food labeling expert, I do my own food labeling. But if somebody is going to hire me to review their labels, it's going to cost them money to make sure that they're doing it right. They have to factor in that cost or that expense that they have just incurred into the price of the product as well. So I think that the issue that we face coming back to African or West African product is once it's African or West African, it has to be cheap. And we have to unlearn that, that mindset because if we're trying to elevate ethnic brands or minority brands, and we still demand that they become excellent to match the culture and the environment they're in, we have to understand that they're going to incur additional expenses that they typically wouldn't have incurred if they were doing it back home, right? Yeah. So when we see that the product is priced $4.99, we, we need to get to a place as a people to unlearn to say, oh, I wish it was cheaper or that's too expensive. I have to pay a graphic designer to design my product. Mm. I, I have to do, I have to, even the software for developing the nutritional label, I have to pay for it. There's food manufacturing licenses that I have to pay to make sure that when the FDA goes to pull my product, I'm, I'm compliant with their regulations for food safety. So those are even the website for selling your product. We have to factor all that in there to price a product. So that kind of gives some understanding to the consumer why ethnic or small brands may seem more expensive. We also don't have the volume breaks. Yeah, the scale that, for sure. So. Correct. The sales, the scale is not there. So the more we have, so for instance, with poke spices, the more I have people purchasing and the more turnover I have, then I can justify going to, I use a co-packer, co going to my co-packer and saying double my size with each production, then I can get a volume break. And then over time, I can pass on those cost savings to the consumer as well. Yeah, I, I agree. There's so many, so many gems you dropped that, uh, like, I don't even have time to unpack. But one of the things that I wanted to point out, too, as you talk about, you know, the African consumer, the West African consumer is our perception of our products versus similar or even sometimes inferior products on the same on the same shelf or in the mm -hmm. same store. Um, etc. And and like I said, I came into this food space from the food service perspective, and you'll see chefs too. You know whether they have a pop up or you know they have their own space or whatever, where someone will come and say, "Oh, like this plate of," I don't want to say jollof, but it was the first thing that came to my mind. <laughs> oh my gosh, um, I didn't want to say jollof, but whatever. So they'll say, "Oh, this plate of jollof is like let's say fifteen dollars." I'm just throwing out a number. Let's say mm -hmm. it's fifteen dollars, and then you'll see, you know, the indignance and the like. Ah, but I can make this at home for like you know <laughs> blah blah blah, and I'm like. Similar to you, right? Think about, I had to pay for this space. Correct. Um, my staff or myself, our time in making this, our presentation of it for you. Correct. Like, and you didn't have to cook. Like, you don't factor in your sweat and, like, the time you have to go to the market. And, like, all of that is factored into it. And so that mindset. But then that same person will go to an Italian restaurant 
and pay top dollar for like past spaghetti, really. Or paella, you know? which is yeah. also jollof. It's just, yeah, it's just rice. So it's just pasta. <laughs> so we are, there also needs to be, I bring this up a lot when I talk both on my podcast and when I speak, you know, at events and stuff, because I'm really trying to con, con- what is the word? <laughs> like inculcate in people <laughs> that like, the the way in which we look at our food, food the perception that we have is also important in how mm-hmm. and how we support people that are trying to to for lack of a better term elevate our food bring it up to mainstream like i find that a lot of people tend to have to look to other audiences versus our community to get mm-hmm the you know the growth that they need the sales that they need because we don't appreciate it enough which is which is unfortunate um so like i said and i i I always say this hoping you'll plant seeds in people's minds like you can think about and maybe i'll do post-covid or maybe i'll do some event around this but like you can think about your pantry and all the different things that you have that are your like literally if you try your pantry can be 80 90 percent all of these small food businesses, African, for mm-hmm. sure. Like mm-hmm. I have juices in my fridge. I have spices. I have sauces from people all over the country because um, that's how I do my part. And then I find that the the flavors work for me. I enjoy cooking more because like I know what flavors are going to come out versus going to, you know, I'll use a Niger Buka, for example, like her mm-hmm. base jollof sauce or her base to, you know, Nigerian tomato stew sauce versus using a pasta sauce, for example. Correct. Correct. Um, and I know, you know, the flavors that are going to come out of that. So I think it's it's really important that we support um, our food entrepreneurs across the board. Um, we're running out of time. This has beca- again because we've had such a really good conversation. I feel like we could go on, on and on and on. So some of the questions I had for you. Uh, we'll put it we'll put it off for now. I think there will be opportunities to have discussions like this. Um, follow Abna. She does really great conversations on Clubhouse if you're on Clubhouse. <laughs> and um, reshare some of that stuff on her Instagram account, which I will, will share when this comes out. So um, as we wrap up, I want to understand, like, what's next for your brand? So, you know, you've had the Spice line for a while now. It looks like you've done some changes in terms of branding and naming mm-hmm. and now going into the food consulting business. As you look, so we're at the beginning of 2021. As you look to the rest of the year, maybe even five years from now, what's the vision for for Abna and, and Pokes and Foley Food Consulting? So with Polk Spices, one of the things that we're looking this year is to get more into like wholesale. When we say Mm. wholesale, where people can buy for wedding souvenirs, people can buy for clients, and even wholesale distribution where it ends up in retail. Because if you think about the Sriracha bottle, they make what, two products? That's, (laughs) That's all they make. We want to be that for West African spicy seasonings. Mm-hmm. When you think about spicy seasonings, West Africa, I need some spicy seasonings. We want you to think poke spices. We want this to be in as many American homes as possible, not just in ethnic minority homes. We want your Texan and your Minnesotan and your Ohioan to be yeah. using it if they're making a pasta sauce and they would have sprinkled cayenne. No, put the cayenne aside. Take our cayenne-based seasoning and use that instead. If you're using a potato salad, eventually our dream, there's a company we're, we're targeting as a global company. Our dream, and we're putting this out in the universe, is that we get bought by them to help oh. ex- and poke spices to become global in terms of putting West because we want it's not just America we want West African flavors authentic clean labeled the way it was done before Mm -hmm. um, some of these seasoning cubes flooded our market we want that to become global and so we want that when they think about poke spices they know that we can trust their packaging we can trust the quality of the ingredients we can trust the brand behind that and then use us as the platform as well in terms of foley food consulting we're looking that we become the trusted and go-to source for small businesses when it comes to their food labeling so if they're thinking about hey i need to get in there they can trust that we'll do a quality job for them similar to what we've done for our brand poke spices and similar to what i've done for many of our private label customers even in industry as well and even for the companies that i've worked for as well 
So that's what I'm looking to. Wow, big dreams. Let's put it out there. <laughs> and, you know, put our prayerful hands and vision, all of that good stuff, and may, may it all come to pass. Yes. Um, so let's transition to rapid fire quickly as we wrap up. So there are quick questions, top yes. of mind, no need to think too hard about it because <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's your preference or whatever, so... Yes. Um, the first one is sweet or salty? Definitely salty. Oh, yeah. For spices, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Would you rather lose your sense of smell or taste? Oh, definitely smell. Taste is important to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then if you could live on one dish for the rest of your life, what would that be? I'm not sacrificing my banku and okra for anything. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I'm surprised. Interesting. Banku and okra, interesting. My uh, mother is ever, so... Oh, I see. Okay, yes. okay, okay. Yeah. And I think... So I'm ever also, both my parents. Um, and I don't know... It's just some people who think... Who don't like banku and okra. I, I think that they haven't had really good one. Like, because there's no way I've had outside, you know, banku and okra that compares to what my mom used to make or what my grandma used to make. So, yeah. Do um, you, yeah. does, does your audience know what Banquin Okro is? Um, I should think so by now, people. <laughs> <laughs> if you I haven't should... had Okro, the closest you can think of is your gumbo. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, gumbo, yeah. With Banku, which is like a, I guess people will say a dumpling made of from fermented... Um, corn and cassava. Uh, corn and cassava, yeah. Correct. Uh, um, which is really good. Um, Yummy. Yeah. Um, then this is sort of, well, what is your favorite African food product and why? Which is not yours, by the way. <laughs> oh, I have a couple. Oh, mm, my. Okay. So um, recently, there's a young lady who launched um, Gloria Shito. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, so, I follow her, yeah. Yes, so she just launched a shito, and if you haven't had shito, shito is a spicy seafood chili crisp. In Ghana, we put on everything, including bread, if you want a snack on bread. But you know how the Chinese in Ghana have taken over shito, and they're making, and you go to every Chinese restaurant, and it's there? Yeah. The shito reminds me of what you get in the Chinese restaurant. Oh, interesting. Yes. Interesting. She's done a great job of that. Um, the other person that I will give a shout-out to is Barry Bissap. Um, when you think about hibiscus, sopolo, sorrel, zobo, hers is what you get in high school. You know that astringent, strong, full flavor, mm -hmm. bold flavor of zobo you would get in high school. That's what she has, but she has hers infused with uh, fruit and cinnamon. She has four flavor lines that she has. So if you haven't had that and you want, uh, you can pour it on ice, make a slushy, make whatever your favorite alcoholic beverage is. But if you want that pure, and these are brands that I'm, the brands I'm sharing are people that have the pure, authentic, bold, yeah. not watered down flavors um, that I personally have tried that I would give a shout out to. At least those two for now. Yeah, that's great. And it's funny because when I when you mentioned Berry Bisap, and I don't even know, it's a good thing for them because when you mentioned Berry Bisap, I immediately like picture like the bold colors. The branding is absolutely amazing. Like literally when you said Berry Bisap, like I pictured the bottles <laughs> and like the graphics and the colors, bold, right? Um and you know what? I will link those two. I usually don't, but I will link those two. Too, because I think those are really great brands as well. Um, Correct. We're a few minutes over, but I really appreciate you coming on, Abna. Like, you've shared some really fantastic stuff. I knew you were great. <laughs> um, but just in our conversation, I personally have, have learned a little bit more, too, in terms of this process. And I know that a lot of our listeners, especially those food entrepreneurs um, who listen quite religiously to this, We'll take away some stuff, and hopefully, we'll sign up for um for that course um and and help to take their brands to to the next level. So, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. And thank you so much for having me here. Honestly, this has been very very good for us, and it's going to help us also reach more people with our seasonings and spices. So I'm very excited. Thank you for listening to Item 13, an African food podcast. If you like the show, 
Please subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast app. To keep up to date, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Item13Podcast. Item 13 is powered by Simplecast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.